We'll hear argument now on number 95-1595, Bruce Babbitt versus Marvin K. Yuppie, Sr. Mr. Feldman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case concerns the constitutionality of, section two, of the amended version of Section 207 of the Indian Land Consolidation Act. The unamended version of this statute was before this Court almost 10 years ago in Hodel against Irving, and the Court found it unconstitutional. Our submission is that the amended statute remedies the flaws that this Court found in the original version of the statute, and the amended statute is therefore constitutional. Now, the purpose, the statute arose as a, as a response to what this Court has characterized in Hodel as the extraordinary problem of extreme fractionation of uh, Indian trust lands. Such extreme fractionation, when many people uh, combine to own undivided interests in single parcels of land, makes productive use of the land very difficult. If a given parcel has a large number, sometimes in the hundreds of different owners, it's very hard for anyone to take initiative to see to it that the parcel is put to a productive economic use. Mr. Feldman, in this case, under the facts of this case, uh, did the disposition of the land in question further fractionalize it, or did one person take uh, each interest as a whole? I mean, one daughter took some, and a son took all of another, the interest in another tract, and so on. It was not further fractionalized, was it, in this case? That's correct. I mean, actually, it won, with respect to one parcel of land, was further fractionated, but that was not a parcel that was subject to, uh, that was small enough, uh, uh, the right. seed had a small enough interest. Does that make a difference, do you think, in our analysis? No, I, I don't think it does. I, in Hodel against Irving, uh, what the court held was that the extreme fractionation is a serious problem and that... The, that, that but we th nevertheless thought it was a taking. In right, it was a taking because, uh, because um, uh, such small, because, <coughs> excuse me, let me start again. The court held in Hodel that 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 um, that, the, that 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 there was a taking because it, it completely and totally eliminated all rights of dissent and devise for the land. Mm -hmm. And as the court said twice in its opinion, even when permitting dissent or devise would result in a consolidation of the land. In in this case, uh, none of the none of the uh, uh, interests, if they had passed effectively through the will, would have resulted in such a consolidation of the land. And indeed, in Hodel against Irving, when the court, in one of the places where the court made that comment, it put a CF site specifically to the amended version of the statute. Mm -hmm. Now, the amended version of the statute, in our view, remedies the flaws in the, original, uh, stat in the original statute in two ways. In the first place, in connection with the economic impact of the statute, the, amended, uh, the original statute required that land be esteed if in the one year prior to the decedent's death it had not earned more than $100, and if the interest involved was less than 2%. The amended version well, of the Well, now, let's talk about the amended version a little. Uh, subsection A of 207 says um, if, if, uh, the in, if the land is incapable of earning $100 in any one of the five years from the date of decedent's death, that, and where the fractional interest has earned its owner less than $100 in any one of the five years before the decedent's death, there's a rebuttable presumption yes. that applies. If I, if I may, if I can take the first, the first passage that you quoted, it's our uh, position that that is, is ambiguous and that the, it is true that the any one of the incapable of earning $100 in any one of the five years could mean in any of the five years, or in, in, if it well, only in fact, one, that would be the normal reading of it, I suppose. Well, I, I had a hard time understanding your reading of it, which would read in the word each of the five years. No, well, I think any in some circumstances can mean each, especially when it's, uh, when it's conjoined with the negative. But, but let, let me just abstract from that for a minute. Um, in the first place, that issue isn't presented by this case because no one has claimed that our reading of the statute in this case was, in this case was wrong. But more importantly, the kinds of lands that we're generally dealing with here um, are lands that are useful primarily for grazing or for mineral leasing. And as a general matter, it doesn't really make, it will be a very small number of cases where which year you're looking at is going to be an important factor. If, it's if, it, if it can be leased for a five-year period for grazing, it'll be leased at about the same amount of money every year. What about timber? Well, and if it can be leased for timber harvest, it might be more than a five-year period that a lease would... Uh, permit, but still, well, you this, could, I asked you said it's mostly grazing and, and mineral. Uh, does the record support that and not timber? Because one of my concerns, along the 
uh, Justice O'Connor's question under this statute is that uh, timber harvesting uh, typically is, I don't know, some parts of California at least once every 15 years. Right, as I, our reading of the statute... But it could be very valuable in that one year. That's right, in our reading of the statute, because the other key part of the change is not to, only did it change to a five-year period, but the question is whether it's capable, not whether in fact in any given year it earned what a What point does amount, this go to? Does it go to the point that if the government only takes a little bit of value, it's not a taking? No, it doesn't. Do we have any law that says that a de minimis taking is not a taking? No, but it, I think it does, it does go to the fact that Congress more carefully tailored what it did in this statute to just those interests that were causing the serious problem. When someone owns the smallest interest that was involved in this case, I think it was five one-thousandths of, of, of the parcel. Yeah, and when people own... It doesn't go to the extent of the interest. It goes to the value of the land more than the extent of the interest, or at least as much to the value of the land as the extent of the interest, right? It goes... It you goes, could have a pretty, pretty big chunk of an interest of worthless land and, and, uh, and, you know, worthless for anything except perhaps camping on it. Right, but Congress was trying to define a category of land that was really causing the problem, and in the amended version of the Act, it acted much more closely and precisely to target that particular land. For example, by referring to land that's capable of earning $100 rather than land that had in a certain year earned $100, uh, uh, someone whose land might have seat might go into a court and say, well, this can be harvested for timber every 15 years, therefore I can lease the land to somebody for a 15-year period. And if the annual rental on that lease will result in more than $100 for me, then I'm out of the statute. It, it was really the change to a capable of earning standard as much as, as, as focusing on the five years versus one year that uh, was significant. I must admit, I, I, one has to uh, marvel at the, uh, at the prognosticative ability or else the serendipity of the Congress that three years before our opinion in Odell, uh, it should pass a statute which happens to solve the very things we were troubled with in, in Hodel. Well, I, th I think that, that, in fact, the two key things that the court pointed out in Hodel uh, that it was most concerned about were, first, that this taking just one arbitrary year before the decedent died might really result in the estate of very valuable interest, and secondly, that it completely and totally abolished all dissent and divide, even in cases where dissent and divide might consolidate interest. What Congress did was it remedied the first problem primarily by talking about the capable of earning rather than just what it had, in fact, earned. And in addition, by setting up this five-year uh, uh, window rather than just one year before the decedent's death. And it dealt with the second problem by permitting devise in precisely those cases where the devise would result in consolidation of the property. The, 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 the kind of property interest that we're talking about here, uh, the smallest interest in this case, as I said, was something like five one-thousandths of a percent. And people who own that small of a property interest can't reasonably be expected, or at least very infrequently will, take enough of an interest in the property to, to do anything I with don't know it. that we, we said in, in Hodel that uh, there, there wasn't enough of a need. It, it seems to me what we said in Hodel is simply you, an essential part of the bundle of property rights is the ability to bequeath it. And if you take that away, you've taken property, period. I think, uh, as, I read the, as, as, I, as I read the court's opinion, what it was speaking of was the complete and total and absolute abrogation of rights of dissent and devise. After all, the court reaffirmed a long line of precedent that it held that the government has very broad authority to regulate the rules of dissent and devise. In this case, this kind of rule is analogous both to typical estate rules, which are kind of abandonment rules, where you have a very small interest. You can't reasonably expect the owner to do anything. He doesn't have enough of an economic incentive to ever do anything with the property, even to return a postcard, perhaps, that w where someone proposes a use of the property that requires his consent. And what Congress was saying was, if that's the kind of interest you have, that is imposing serious costs on the community, and we're going to presume that you abandon it unless you did one of three things. Either during your lifetime, you unite it with another interest and consolidate your interest and get above the 2% uh, uh, threshold, or second, you can dispose of the property during your lifetime and thereby and pass on. You can certainly pass on any money that you're able to realize by disposing it to your uh, to your heirs by descent or devise or however however it can be passed on. Or three, you can pass it on by uh, through through after your death uh, through a probate proceeding, but you can only devise it to somebody who already owns an interest in the same property. Doesn't doesn't that effectively mean that you can't devise it to the people you are most likely to want to devise it to? I mean, I, I presume it is highly unlikely that the people who are already owners of the parcel uh, are related to you or, or, or lineal descendants of yours. Uh, so I, I suppose that 
that really cancels out most of the prospective devices, doesn't it? I, I actually don't think that's true. As a matter of fact, in this very case, one of the six respondents uh, got three properties uh, that, she wouldn't, that she wouldn't otherwise have gotten because she was a daughter of the decedent and she already owned interest in those properties. But more generally, what's caused the problem that Congress was addressing here was kind of uh, was, was rules of dissent, was primarily rules of dissent that, that allowed the land to be fr uh, fractionated over the years. And frequently the land will be held within a given lineal family. Perhaps it's branched out quite a bit by the time it gets to the third or fourth generation. So generally it will be other, or at least very frequently, it will be other people who you do have a family tied to who are other. But you're talking about collateral heirs, a quite distant relationship if you get to the third or fourth generation, aren't you? You, you might be. You might well be. As I said, in this case, one of the people was, was a daughter, but certainly many of them, some of the other, the other five, uh, didn't get any land on that basis and didn't already own interest in the parcels. Mr. Elman, I don't read Hodel as, as resting upon the total elimination of the ability to devise. It, it just doesn't say that. It says, uh, it says uh, the regulation here amounts to virtually the abrogation of the right to pass on a certain type of property, the small undivided interest to one heir, to one's heirs. Not totally, virtually. Uh, right, and, I, and it does virtually that here too. And, and the court, I, I would say the court also said in, in Hodel the difference in this case from the other cases that the court reaffirmed that have uh, affirmed the authority of the sovereign to uh, set rules of dissent and devise. The difference in this case is the fact that dissent and devise are completely abolished. Indeed, they are abolished even in circumstances where the governmental purpose sought to be advanced does not conflict with the further dissent of the property. But I, I think stepping aside for a minute whether the courts, and indeed I think the question before the court today is the question of whether Hodel rested on the complete uh, abrogation of dissent or uh, devise or rested on a rule that would much more severely restrict the sovereign's ability to regulate dissent or devise. With respect to that, Feldman, I was trying to think of any other kind of regulation by the sovereign of the right to dispose of property on death that would be comparable to this. I mean, you, you rely on a large power of the sovereign to regulate the disposition of property on death. And here the regulation says most lineal descendants will not qualify. I, I couldn't think of anything that would be close to this. Is, is there any, you talk about a large authority, but is there anything that so severely restricts the category of potential devisees? I don't think, there's nothing I can, I can't answer that I can give you an example of uh, any particular statute that does, that restricts the category of lineal devisees so thoroughly, although there may be statutes that give, uh, if you include, that give an interest to a spouse, for example, over the interest of children or something like that, that could in, in, in some circumstances have that effect. But there have been, uh, and the court has upheld, uh, statutes that have restricted devise to one's children. Under the common law, I believe, you couldn't devise property to an alien, uh, real property, and even if an alien have, happened to be your child, and this court has upheld that. Um, in addition, there are, in, there are rules that uh, some Indian tribes have that, they, that you can't devise, that you can't uh, devise but most property. Of, most of them come up as except in the main you can devise your property, but there are these exceptions. And here is in the main you can't unless you come right. under the exception of somebody who already has a share of that same and, and I think you really have to look at the unique character of this, proper, of this property interest, Why? the kinds of property interests that we're talking about in this case. Why is it unique? It's unique because these interests are extremely small fractional interests, a kind of fractional interest that very, very rarely exists outside of Indian law, and that the owners may well, in fact, have abandoned the property. It's very hard to tell whether they've abandoned the property because the administrative costs of leasing it insofar as it's able to be leased or doing it with whatever whatever can be done are borne by the United States and because they're not subject to state taxes. And really, one of what, meanwhile, this interest is both, I think it's analogous both to cases where Congress is saying owning this kind of an interest is in itself a kind of a nuisance that has to be abated. And if you don't take state action, if you don't take action to abate that nuisance in the course of your lifetime by... It was a nuisance that Congress created by, by principally by prohibiting the, the Indians from deeding uh, this this property. Uh, isn't, isn't that how it all came about? Well, well, aren't there severe limits on the alienation of it by the Indians? There are limits on the alienation of it. So Congress gives this property to the Indians, puts these severe limitations on it, which creates this problem of fractionalization, and then comes in and says, because of this problem of fractionalization, which we've created, 
we, we're going to take it away from you. I'm not sure that it's fair, though, to say that Congress created... The, 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 the process of fractionalization may have been a byproduct of a number of different factors. One, among them are the fact that it's not subject to state taxes and that the government bears the cost of administering the property and thereby doesn't give anybody an incentive to determine whether this is property that they really want and really want to do something with or this is just abandoned property that they're just going to ignore and pass on to the next generation uh, in equal undivided interest. Well, I suppose the government could purchase these small interests or take them by... Uh, eminent domain uh, that's, that's paying correct. something, and I guess the government also could help the tribes do just that. that that's correct, although the magnitude of the problem, uh, uh, you know, each of these interests, in, in this case some of the interests are, are, are estimated value of $5 or $10 mm-hmm. or $15, mm-hmm. but the magnitude of the problem over millions of acres of Indian land where the ownership is highly fractionated is very, very substantial. Mm-hmm. And Congress reasonably... But, but Congress has imposed so many detailed requirements uh, on efforts by the tribes to consolidate. Maybe some of those could be eliminated. I think actually... simpler. Actually, uh, I'm sure there's room for an improvement in the statutory schemes here. But in the Indian Land Consolidation Act and some of the other provisions that are right, uh, I think this is codified at 29 U.S.C. 2206, at 220543, um, there are some other provisions Congress enacted to enable tribes to take a variety of actions to purchase land or to consolidate interests on the reservation. And in fact, in 2206C, uh, I think it is, the very section we're talking about, Congress specifically indicated that if a tribe wanted to uh, uh, adopt a code of inheritance that would deal with, that would also deal with this fractionation problem in some other way, that that could be approved by the Secretary. And I think Solomon, the Secretary can I ask you sort of a basic question? Uh, supposing Congress gave plenty of notice to the uh, Indians, you know, I, I suggested that in, in the Hodel case, say that 20 uh, statutes to take effect 20 years after its date, say and, and no Indian property may be passed by at death to heir to anybody, just period, it'll all cheat to the tribe. Would that violate the takings clause? That, I'm, I'm sorry, that no, no, just all property and, uh, owned by any member of the tribe shall cheat to the tribe uh, at death. Uh, but would not interfere with the uh, owner's right to dispose of it in revivals at any time during the 20 years. Would that violate the takings? I, I think it would under this court's decision in Hodel, in fact, at least. And insofar as that was based on prior cases, I think it would, it would violate the takings clause on that basis as well. Um, it really wasn't, although there really wasn't an alternative for Congress, Congress's action that it took in this case. It, by, Section 2206 does two things. First, it eliminates the right of devise of these very small fractional interests. Um, in doing that, the court itself in Hodel suggested that that's something that Congress may well want to, may, may be able to do. And um, indeed, insofar as the statute has only that effect, it should be held constitutional insofar as it affects people who didn't go to the trouble of making a will to determine who, uh, who an heir of a, a particular property should well, be. Well, does the amended statute prevent dissent, I assume, without a will? of an interest even where the dissent under the circumstances would result in a consolidation. It doesn't, it doesn't do that, but if you think about it, it would be a very, very rare case where it that will happen. It seems to say so. It, it would. It says nothing in this section shall prohibit the devise right. such an achievable fractional interest. Right. But I if think there's w- an intestate succession... No, I, I agree with you. I think that it would prevent any dissent. But it's, what it's saying... Even to, if it results in a consolidation. Right, but it will be a very unusual situation where dissent would... Dissent was what caused the problem, and it will be a very unusual situation where that would result in consolidation because you have somebody who has an interest, passes it to his two, three, four, five, six, however many there are children, they're each going to get a smaller uh, part of that. And even if one of them already owns a very small interest in the property, it's going to be very unlikely that it's going to result in, it's almost certain to result in increased fractionation. I don't think Congress had to go that far uh, in, order to, uh, in order to remedy the problem. And, and indeed, I was just going to say that the, I do think, as I was saying before, that the statute should be, uh, would be constitutional at least insofar as it uh, prohibits dissent. And if there's a case like but that... Mr. Feldman, isn't, isn't that a problem? I know you asked us to say, at least with respect to uh, dissent or further de- fractionalizing a share by a device, but those people are not before this court. And we do have these people who were devised shares that were not reduced further by the device. So we can decide that case. But 
isn't there something about uh, procedural due process that would inhibit us from deciding the cases of people who, ha- who have not been given notice and an opportunity to be heard that their cases are going to be affected by this? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not suggesting the, case, the court should decide any case that's not before it. But I do think there's two points. One is we are asking the court to make clear that this is an as-applied challenge in this case and that there are other, these other kinds of cases, including a large number where there's no will at all and where the decedent may... Those, those could be left open, but I don't... Those at least should be I left open. And it may well be that the court's reasoning, uh, although we don't... Reasoning, in, if it were to reach the conclusion that the statute's unconstitutional as applied here, the court's reasoning may well make clear that in these other contexts it would be constitutional, albeit those cases themselves would be left for another time. <clears throat> Can I modify my hypothetical? Supposing instead of prohibiting both devise and intestacy, it's simply prohibited intestacy. No property of any Indian shall pass by, by reason of intestacy. But all, if there's no will, the property will all escheat to the state, uh, to the tribe, rather. Do you think that would be constitutional? I, I think, I suppose it might depend at least in part on what it is that Congress is intending to accomplish by that. If all that Congress is intending to, intend to do is to not... consolidate property interests that are small and fractionated in, right, the, but in, the, in the tribe. Well, right? insofar as it, if it deals with just very small fractionated interests, our argument is that it would be constitutional. But if a statute like that also applied to, for instance, entire interests in the property, then it's hard to see what it would be trying to uh, accomplish other than, other than just... It wouldn't be remedying any kind of nuisance for no. the community. It wouldn't be solving any uh, adverse problem that seems to be occurring. And um, I think in those cases, there would be a problem under the Penn Central analysis. You say property you don't care about enough to, to will it to anybody uh, goes back to the tribe. Well, I, it's we, we said in, Jose, in, in, in Hodel, Justice O'Connor's opinion said that it may be appropriate to minimize further compounding by abolishing the descent of such interest by rules of intestacy. Right, and it's possible. Thereby forcing the owners to formally de- designate an heir. Right, and it's, it's, it's possible that a statute like that would be constitutional. And indeed, there are other contexts. Uh, that would solve a lot of the problem, wouldn't it? To, it, would, it would solve and not it only the problem. And it focuses especially on these little interests that are so insignificant that, uh, you know, the, the person doesn't, doesn't care enough to, to even mention it in, in, in a will. I don't believe it would fo- The problem is I don't believe it would focus on those interests. It would... Uh, a statute, if we're talking about a statute that would just eliminate the vise of all interests in allotted trust lands, it would, it would sweep far more broadly. Intest- uh, eliminate it, intest- it, it, all intestate, it, all intestate descent. Uh, I think it would, it would focus far more broadly than, than uh, is necessary or, or, or suggested. Mm-hmm. But I think the court, there would be authority for that kind of, a, for that kind of a, a, an outcome if, it, what, if Congress did not act too broadly. For example, in uh, United States against Locke and in Texaco against Short, the court dealt with cases uh, that involved that involved people who, in order to maintain a, a very real ownership interest, in those cases I think it was mineral leases, they had to take some kind of action like filing a paper or something like that uh, with a, a recorder of deeds. If that kind of thing uh, uh, were required, if a will were seen as equivalent to taking that kind of action, then I think a, a statute like that would be constitutional. And it seems to me, if you, if you, you haven't gone that far, but if you said that was okay, I don't know why you can't say we're going to insist on intervivals action in order to protect the value and the interest. You don't see I'm making you argue the wrong side of the case, I guess. I shouldn't do this. <laughs> but if, if you can abolish intestacy, I don't know why, and, and say you've got, to, you've got to show sufficient interest in the property to, to identify it in your last will and testament. I don't know why you couldn't similarly, if the property owner has plenty of notice, plenty of time to prepare his or her affairs, say you must uh, dispose of an inter vivos in order to preserve the value, and then you can leave the cash to somebody else, because there is, there is a national interest in getting rid of these fractionated interests. Yeah, I, I mean... I, w- I could only answer that I think that it may, it may be that you could do that, but that the, this, what Congress did in this case is much more narrowly tailored to dealing but with a, a great many wills don't simply set out parcels of property and do nothing else. They're, they're, they'll devise the residuary estate, everything else I have, which, which would pick up these fractional interests. That's, so it, it isn't as if wills uh, would necessarily pick out this property. The, person who writes the will may have no more idea that he has the interest than the person who lets it go by intested succession. Right. Indeed, the will in this case, actually, a number, I think maybe 15 or so of the, of the interest that is cheated here, were, uh, I think it's cheated from someone who just got them as a result of a residuary clause in the will in this case. Are any of the Indian lands uh, in question here ever subject to partition? I suppose three or four owners uh, are in a real dispute over what to do with the land. Do they have a remedy of partition? Under some circumstances, yes, and all I can say is that there's dispute as to whether it can be done. It requires a majority, a majority of the ownership interests in order to seek partition, or whether it requires 
uh, all the owners to agree to participate. And, and, and if it does, I suppose there are only certain authorized persons at the sale because it can't be uh, devised to a non-Indian. It can be, you're right, it can't be, that's right. Or, or, or well, transferred to an Indian. It can be, if, if an Indian has, has a, an ownership interest in a parcel of land and seeks to take it out of trust status, ordinarily if the person is competent, the secretary agrees to that, and then at that point it can be transferred. But to who the would be the bidder at the partition sale? If there are a limited, if there are a limited number of, no, I, I, of qualified owners, I think I believe there would be authority even to to take it out of trust status. It take to to view the the um, let's say a unanimous application by the owners to view that as as a uh, as their request to take it out of trust status. Well, but then it wouldn't it. be partition. Well, they want to sell it, and then it would be partitioned. But I do think that partitioning, as a practical matter, is not really a solution to the problem because. Taking a, a parcel of land, especially with the size of some of these ownership interests involved, and trying to figure out how fairly to divide it up so the economic value of what you're getting is equal to your ownership interest is extraordinarily difficult. But that's just what happens in the, I mean, outside of the Indian law, isn't that what happens? Right, but and moreover, hasn't that stopped the proliferation of these interests? In other words, why can't you do precisely the same thing in respect to the small interests in the Indian territory that you do in respect to the small interests in respect to non-Indian territory? I, I think you give people the right to, to partition or to ask for it, and the, the person who owns $5 worth of land says, you know, I'll sell it to him for the $5. I'm not going to go to court for that. Right. I, I think the problem is that it's rare, very rarely the case outside of the Indian context where these very, very small... Where the, That's the, because we've had that system. So, so the fractions are so small that it gets to be very, very cumbersome to, to effectively partition it or even to... to, to well, I guess it could be sold, but sort of no, I thought, I, my, my point is I thought that outside the Indian context, we find that we don't have this problem because there are these mechanisms in place. And so if you, why couldn't you, instead of taking the thing away, just put the same mechanisms in place? Is, I, I'm not you arguing that. I'm just sure what the reason is. Well, what is the reason why that hasn't happened in, or wouldn't happen or couldn't? I think the reason is because in order to partition, I, I suppose one reason is that it is thought that you don't want to just dispossess all of these Indians of their land because perhaps some owner of a very small interest uh, uh, doesn't uh, uh, wants, wants to have it partitioned. Well, it's one thing, too, for uh, an owner, say, of three quarters of a tract to buy out fractionalists in the other quarter, uh, but it, for someone with three one-hundredths interest to start a partition proceeding, you have quite different incentives. That's right. And also, the one other thing I'd add is that this land is the administrative expenses of upkeep of the land are, are borne by the United States, and it's not subject to state taxes, and therefore you don't have some of the incentives of why owners of land in a non-Indian context that gets fractionated would want to partition All it of this you just, can deal it with seems to me to say the government has created a, an economic uh, a wonderland which, which has uh, caused this problem. The normal market economic incentives that stop fractionalization have been taken away by the government. And now the government comes in with this ham-handed approach of simply uh, solving the problem by, uh, by denying the, 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 the right to devise. And I don't know why it couldn't solve the problem just as readily by letting the, the normal uh, incentives of, of the market come back into the picture. I, I suppose the only answer is that because of, it really goes to the whole history of Indian law and all of the purposes that are served by holding the land in trust and maintaining an Indian land base, that it's a much more complex problem than just saying, let's take the land out of trust or whatever we would have to do and treat this like any other land. Yeah, but let's take one of the mechanisms. It's, it's perfectly true that for, for these minuscule interests, um, it may be very cumbersome even to get the, the ball rolling by going into uh, court and the normal courts filing petitions and so on. Uh, but the government can certainly provide a simplified partition scheme, for example, uh, that would, I, I suppose, just uh, allow a, uh, an extremely simple filing before an administrative officer with a low filing fee or none at all. Uh, and, and that would be a way of bringing a kind of uh, normal market mechanism uh, adapted to the particular problem that the government has caused. Why can't the government do something like that? There, I, I suppose that there are partition schemes, that could, there are partition regulations that we cite in our brief that are currently applicable to this land and allow partition in some circumstances. But I suppose the problem is that the land, many, many people have, very, have attachments to land, especially some of the larger landowners, and they don't necessarily want their land partitioned. And it's important for the government to keep the land as part of, it's not important for the government, it's important for, the, for, for Indian policy to have the land maintained in trust for the Indians. And that carries with it a lot of other baggage that you can't just can't just discard 
uh, to deal with to deal with this aspect of the problem. Thank you, Mr. Feldman. Uh, Mr. Martel, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. We are here today to discuss the effects of the amendments on the Hodel decision. Mr. Yuppie left 34 parcels to six of his children, and he left them in such a fashion that each child would, would be sole owner of the parcel that he left. He pretty much has, was, is now put in the position of the, that the plaintiffs were in the Hodel decision. The, the amended act does not, does not cure the problems pointed out by the court in the whole Hodel decision. And it wasn't until 1992 that this, uh, Congress decided to have again hearings on the fractionization problem. In 1994, the Secretary distributed for comment new amendments that had the heart of it, of which was a, a revolving money fund to pay for these interests. One of, the, one of the problems that remains with the amendments now is that the, the amendments still try to categorize the land as de minimis by con considering only the income that they generate, whereas the court in Hodel said the proper determination is the, the land's actual economic value. The economic value here is, is a $2,100 of these, is what these parcels are worth. That's a significant sum of money, and it's significant in Roosevelt County, which is one of the poorest counties in Montana. Mr. Yuppie's property interests, if they were partitioned, in 10 of those parcels, those interests would be between two and, two and six acres. So, as the court has said, in, in two and six acres in each parcel, or, or all a total. When I when I divided his um, the the acreage by his interest, in one parcel it was six acres, in four other parcels th those were four acre tracks, and in three other parcels those tracks were in excess of two acres. So, a taking even of, of small land is still a taking. Un under the amendments um, at 25 U.S.C. 2206. It appears that if the tribe wants to have a consolidation program and pay, and excuse me, have a consolidation program and have a add within their code how they're going to treat descent and distribution, and that code disenfranchises non-member Indians and non-Indians that they have to pay for fair market value for, for those interests that they get as a tribe. The second problem here is that the the option of inter vivos transfers do not cure the taking. Um, Mr. Yuppie has virtually no opportunity to, to leave his land to his children. It is only through a devise of his land that he would be able to, and that's only if his children are, are already owners. Well, why, why would that be, Mr. Martel? I, I would think that if, if he knows who he might devise it to, which among his children, he might also make an inter vivos transfer to those children, unless, unless he's dependent upon income for the, from the property. He wasn't de dependent on income. It's just such a headache to do it. Well, and, but and surely know, it's, it's no bigger a headache to devise it inter, or to grant it inter vivos than to leave it by will, is it? Well, it's a, it's a tremendous bureaucratic process. I mean, if he was to try to transfer his, his land in, in his lifetime, it's, it involves the approval of the local agency. He would have to go through it if he did it in his lifetime. His children would have to go through it if he did it by will. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it true that, that he did consult the Bureau of Indian Affairs in drafting the will? They did Isn't that true that these owners do rely on the Bureau for assistance in their you know, legal affairs and dealing with their property? Correct, Your Honor. Um, in 1981, he went to the regional, the area office in Billings, away from the reservation, and had the chief realty officer draw up his will, and it was retained there. And at no time after 1981 was he ever told that his devices would be ineffective. There's no explanation of that in the record, is there? Why, why he wouldn't have been advised that the, the devices didn't comply with the statute? No, it's just the reality. Nobody knows about this law, and nobody is told about this law. I mean, it, it's just not happening. Yeah. Suppose they had passed, a, suppose the system were totally different, the administrative system, and what had happened is every person who has one of these interests got a big piece of paper in big letters. It said, you own a small interest. Check the box below, box one. At my death, I would like it to go to the, the tribe. B, at my death, I would like it to go to fill in the blank. Okay? Right. Now, suppose they got that. 
and there's signature on that. It says, if you check B, proceed to page 3 and sign that. And it happened on page 3 and 2 with all the necessary stuff for an inter vivos transfer, i.e. all the necessary stuff for a trust, and uh, you set up the trust, and then at your death it goes to the beneficiary. Uh, you know, all those things were all there. So they'd gotten total notice. They'd gotten exactly how to do it. Uh, their wishes would be carried out. It's not that hard to work out. Then would this be unconstitutional? I don't think there would be a due process problem, but um, I think there would still be a problem in, the, in that the land is not compensated. Well, then why, why, why can, could a state ever, for example, say traditional dower rights are the wife got one-third of a life estate in the husband's property? We think that's out of date. So we pass a statute that as to the future, the wife or husband is to have one-half of the property acquired during marriage. We make the dower states the same as the community property states into the future. Could, could, could that never occur? I, giving I, everybody proper notice, giving everybody uh, plenty of chance? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not asking this because I have an answer. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what the theory is that underlies the unconstitutionality. I think that the theory is, is that his, he's being forced to forfeit his land to the tribes. Have well, I mean, SG. Right. And, and can they never change the S-cheat law? They say, we think seven years in our state, gee, that's an awfully long time in today's day and age. We think you have to notify the, the person who has the bank account that you forgot about within six years. Otherwise, you lose it. I, I think there wouldn't be abandonment if, if there was an opportunity. If there was a process, you knew about the process, and you chose not, not to do it, then, then perhaps the property would be abandoned. But that's, people here don't know about the process. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm... Do any of the tribes impose any kind of a property tax on these lands? Are they permitted to under federal law? Not that I know of, Your Honor. Some tribes do have consolidation programs. But... Because, of course, with uh, non-Indian property, there are state and local taxes applicable. And if the owner doesn't pay them for a period of time... There are procedures that the state or county can go through to forfeit the property for non-payment of taxes. Right. Mr. Martell, regarding uh, Justice Breyer's question about changing the sheet law or changing the inheritance laws, I suppose there's a difference, is there not, for purposes of takings law as to whether you have a general state law or federal law that is applicable to all property owners? versus uh, a law that uh, simply uh, picks out a, a few property owners or one class of property. For example, uh, I, I think we'd have a different question before us. If, uh, if uh, on the one hand, uh, the state law uh, said uh, property as cheats uh, in just two years instead of eight throughout the state, uh, versus uh, a law that picks out a particular class of property owners and just says we're going to we're going to make an exception from the normal state law for you, and your property shall cheat more quickly. There might be a takings issue in the latter case when there isn't in the former. Aren't you relying to some extent on the fact that this is not a general, uh, you know, intestate disposition law? It's one targeted at a particular class of property owners. Correct, Your Honor, and I, you know, I would maintain that that's pretty much the essence of it because Indians take took this property in the Allotment Act with the understanding that it, they would have these rights. But the, the government has a great deal of authority under the Constitution over the affairs of the Indian tribes. Though I don't think the federal government could step in and prescribe a general partition statute that would be contrary to the laws of all of the 50 states. But it does have special authority to deal with Indian property. And certainly that's what it's attempted to do here. Correct, yeah. Well, you can see that this doesn't apply to all Indian property. It only applies to Indian property that uh, that that is is fractionated the way the way this is. The only people who are affected are those who hold these these small these small shares. All other Indians can continue to to devise or intest or dispose of uh, through intestacy as before. Yes, sir. Yes, but it does apply to the entire Indian population and all Indian lands where there is an interest that is undivided and it meets this statutory formula. Right. Maybe we I mean, should just talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anyway, you can say that in this case, he didn't get enough notice. They didn't send him the paper. It was passed only a few years before he died. It wasn't for the future. 
And, and so from your point of view, I guess this is somewhat irrelevant, the debate that, of what would happen under other circumstances. Well, but, it's not, but is it not true that what we have at issue in this case is your particular client's claim? We aren't necessarily deciding that the statute would be valid or invalid as to a host of other applications. Isn't that true? Yes, sir. Right. It's not a class action or it's not an industry-wide piece of litigation. Right. You just have a... No. We, we wrestled with this whole thing ten years ago. I thought the issue before us is a much more narrow one, and that is whether, uh, as applied to, to the, the, this as-applied challenge... Uh, Hodel governs or not. What is it that you say uh, uh, to the government's contention that this is different from Hodel? It's a hard question as an original matter, and I remember agonizing quite a bit uh, over the decision in Hodel. But there is the decision. It's on the books. Now, tell us why this is the same as Hodel rather than, as the government says, different. Okay. It's the same as Hodel because Mr. Yuppie has no options. I mean, his option is a complex, during his lifetime, a you know, a series of complex transfers, and, and the court in Hodel said that's, you know, that's not a substitute for the right that's taken. His, his right that is, is taken is he can't, his land can't not descend, and he, he cannot leave it to his children because devise has to be limited to a co-owner. And in reality, as was pointed out before, children don't, inher don't inherit land at the same time their parents do. Most Indians, when they receive land, receive it through inheritance, but most kids do not. Mr. Martel, what about the first difference? The government didn't bring it up an argument, but on brief they said that the uh, 1984 change uh, had three things in it that weren't there before, and one of them had to do with authorizing tribes to adopt laws that would govern dispositions of achievable interest. Have there, have there been, to your knowledge, uh, any such tribal codes? No, Your Honor. Anything that tribes have done to consolidate have consolidation programs were before these these amendments. So th that sig significant change turns out still to be uh, undeveloped and un unused. Correct, Your I gather the tribes don't care. The, the the owners of the small fractionated interest don't care. The only person who cares is the government who was saddled with the enormous administrative burden of keeping track of all of these fractionated interests. Is that what is that what's going on? I think that. The tribes strategically don't care because they get the, the land by, by not making an effort. I mean, if, if they don't pass a consolidation program, they still get the land. But I think that the people care about the land. That's kind of why we're here. I mean, Mr. Mr. Yuppie wanted his children to have the land of his ancestors, and they wanted that land. And so... Oh, I say don't care. I don't mean don't care about the land. They don't care about the fractionating. Um, they care about it, but... There's such an overwhelming bureaucracy there that it's hard to make headway into it. I mean, it, it, I mean, it would be hard to make headway into into 34 parcels if if the people that you're talking to weren't weren't receptive to doing that. And that's the reality of it. I mean, they don't want to spend the time to help you do a gift deed 34 times, or or let you know that perhaps you should do that. We had considered it in our in our argument that, that under the amendments there's still a problem as a, exactly as there was in um, Hodel that uh, for Indians under 18 and those incompetent that they they're totally just are just like the plaintiffs in Hodel that uh, devise and dissent are totally abrogated for them. We feel that, that the Ashi provision is, in fact, a, a categorical taking because, as I mentioned, Mr. Yuppie has, has no options. I mean, in the, um, the oper operative provisions of the amendments le leave him no choice. I mean, he, uh, he, could, you know, he could leave it to a co-owner, but that, that will not be his children. And he could, could do inter vivo transfers, but that's, as the court said, that's not an effective substitute for losing the right of devising dissent. Uh, so in effect, his land is transferred to, to a tribe without his consent. We feel as a regulation that, um, if you consider these amendments a reg regulation, that they go too far again. I mean, the stated government purpose is, is to stop the fractionization of Indian land, but the, the underlying purpose that comes out of time and again in the legislative history is, to, is that the government wants to save money, and saving money has never been a sufficient reason to allow a taking. And there's no average reciprocity of advantage 
here. I mean, there's no public benefit to Mr. Yupi for his children if the tribes obtain his land interests. The, Mr. Yupi's right of descent is, is a vested right, and compensation should be paid for that right if it's taken. Above but would you contest, suppose all, the only limit was you can give away what you have, but you, you can't uh, divide it up into further hands. So you've got this one piece, you can give it to one person, but you can't give it to three people. Would that be constitutional, to put that restriction on the ability to devise? I think it would, Your Honor, because his land would not be taken from him, and that's in fact what he did. So. What if the government were to put in some sort of a unitization program? like the states have put in, in a lot of oil fields, where the thing is consolidated into certain minimum tracks, and you get a percentage from that, but you don't have the right to deal on your own with it anymore. Would that be permissible, do you think? I think it would be permissible, because you'd still have an identifiable property interest. Would you refresh my recollection on the facts of this case? The decedent had several children? He had ten children, Your Honor. So that if the will were given effect, you would have further fractionalization then, wouldn't you? Each would get an undivided tenth of what he had? No, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Um, if, if the will was allowed to, to go through, each, each of his children would only take one, one interest. His land was not fractionated under his will. I mean, if there was a royalty check coming, instead of coming to him, it would go to one child. The next parcel, it might go to another child, but it wouldn't go to two children. In other words, this decedent left his interest in such a way that there was no further fractionalization Correct. of the real property interest. Yes, Your Honor. I, I, I don't... Would you give me a little more detail, explain how that could be if he had ten children in the will? Was it the, did he give a parcel to each of the ten? Is that what he did? I guess I've confused it by saying he had ten children. Um, his other children were taken care of through other devices. Oh, so he had one, there's one device, the one child at the stake here. Oh, there's six children here, but each of them had a specific device that gave them... And each in a, in a separate parcel. Correct. I see. Okay, I'm okay. sorry. Sorry to be unclear. And would you clarify for me, this case does not further subdivide the interest, but the government says um, even if it did, it would be valid. If it further fractionalized the interest, uh, the government says that would be valid. What is your position on that? Can the, can the Congress prohibit further fractionalization? I don't think they can prohibit it unless they pay for it. I mean, okay, I, I didn't find that you took a position in your oh. briefs. That's well, why, why would there be a payment requirement there? I would suppose that precluding further fractionalization was not going to make the land worth less. So you're, you're saying the, the, the value would be simply the value of the capacity to fractionalize? I'm not sure you Mr. I'm surprised because I thought you told me that you thought it would be a legitimate restriction for the government to say, to Mr. U.P. or anyone else. You can give each parcel that you have to one person or to that many different people as you have parcels, but you cannot take that one parcel and turn that parcel into two. I thought in answer to my question, you said, that's right, that would be the kind of restriction that we wouldn't attack as a taking. Correct, Your Honor. And then you seem to give a different response to Justice O'Connor. Mm. I thought you accepted that you can freeze the size of the parcel as they now are, and, okay. I guess and I, no further division. And I that guess I was okay. confused. I mean, it, it seems as long as he doesn't doesn't lose his land, that that would that would be a legitimate way to do it. Well, I guess that means that a number of applications of this very statute would be permissible, although the one involving your clients would not be, because this statute will pre prevent that prevents further fractionalization, as I understand it. But I, I would think it, it would, 
I guess I'm getting confused. I mean, I don't think it would would ever be, con you know, if you're taking somebody's land and not paying for it, then it's not permissible. There, there are a lot of, there are statutes in different countries that, and that's what I was interested in. This case differs from the last case in that here there is a set of people whom you can leave the property to and a set to whom you cannot leave it to. That's the difference, right? Right. Okay. Well, there are a lot of land law, I think property law in different countries that do things like that. They say you can leave, you cannot leave this land or you cannot leave this part of your estate to anyone but your first child or to anyone but the children. They already have an interest in it, or you have to leave a certain amount to your wife, or you have their, those, those are traditional. And that's why I was trying to see, is there anything in those cases that suppose we wanted to move towards some of those kinds of rules? I don't know that any state would or wouldn't, but this sounds a little bit like that. It seems like most of the state laws that deal with, you know, with forced errors like that are doing it for the benefit of the family. Right, and here they say, you see, the tribe is like your family. We're doing it for the benefit of the tribe. But not for the benefit of Mr. Yupi. No, and that's also true if you don't like your children. <laughs> I suppose if the forced air were the nation of France, that might be a different question. Some of these... Uh, um, Indians to, uh, whose property would escheat to the tribe are from, in fact, uh, uh, different uh, uh, segments of the tribe, aren't they, that, that, that are not on that reservation, Correct. either from a different reservation or, in some cases, different tribes, isn't that, isn't right, that right? There's three reservations involved. We had argued that Mr. Yuppie's uh, right of dissent is vested because this is an Indian law case, and his right of dissent was, in, was part of the bundle of rights that, that was understood to be taken through the General Allotment Act. So it, the General Allotment Act had as, as its purpose to uh, start the Americanization of Indians, and therefore the, the right to be, to be of dissent was a, a vested traditional property right that the Indians understood they had when they took the land. Um, how, how large an area is the Fort Peck Reservation and how many of the tribe reside on it? It's a million, it, within the exterior boundaries it's a million acres. The tribal in Indian ownership is about 51 percent and there's about 5,000 people there. 5,000 It's a family. It's a rather large family. Yes, sir. Well, thank you. I have nothing further, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Martell. The case is submitted.